card players and thanks for dousing yourself in a healthy dose of the 64th episode of Scoring at the Movies. We go back and look at aged sports films and we won't take the rake, but we will spoil the movie. I'm the guy who's only skied a couple of times and has never suffered a career-ending injury, Ryan Ellis. And here's my co-host who's often on tilt and who today at least is showing a distinct lack of cleavage. Yeah, that hoodie's up to the neck. Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I did not put on my glamorous evening gown for this evening. I'm going more for the Player X kind of look than the sexy hostess. There you are. So at some point tonight, my only goal is to full-on bluff you off of the best point in some sort of debate we have. It doesn't matter if your point is the nuts. I'm going to get you to fold it. And then hopefully you go on full-on monkey tilt at that point and just storm out of here after dumping half a million dollars in my lap. <laughs> That's sort of my game plan for this recording. I'll be the Bill Camp of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a classic example of the that guy actor you talk about all the time, Bill uh, Camp, yeah. especially the last several years. He's been in so many things, TV and movies. And not Mark Strong, is it Jeremy Strong? Jeremy Strong. Dean Keith in this movie. I had no idea who that guy was until I started watching Succession. Mm -hmm. And I loved him as the slimy brother in Succession. He's kind of a similarly slimy dude in this movie. He's in Kendall Roy mode in this movie big he time. He totally is. And he's a kind of actor that I've noticed the same way the last few years. He pops up in a similar role, like a slime ball kind of guy, but he's just all over the place. And this movie has a couple of those kind of actors mm -hmm. scattered throughout. Character actor kind of movie. Yeah, with, with one Chris, great Chris star. Chris O'Dowd is in it as well. Chris O'Dowd, yeah. Similar kind of actor. One of my favorites. A lot of people love the guy. He's all right, I guess. And then a great star turn. Not great, but a good star turn for sure from Jessica Chastain. Yes. Let's open that beer over there. What are you drinking today? This is my Ryzen Amber Ale. It sounded close enough to Raisin for me to pick it for this one. I'm rising it up. What's it say? Lost Sea? Oh, Lost Craft. That's a brewery. And I've got Canadian Club and Diet Pepsi. Okay, then. Pokerio Princess in Lithuania. That was the title there. Wait, Lithuania? I thought you were going to say Mexico or something. Pokerio. Yeah, I think you pronounced it better than me. And they spelled <laughs> Princess. Princesio. P-R-I-N-C-E-S-E. -E. Was released by oh, STX Entertainment, which is Entertainment One here in Canada. That's pretty well known in this country. On Christmas Day 2017, to make sure it qualified for the Oscars... It didn't even quite double its budget worldwide, so that means it was a bit of a failure. Did it get nominated for any Oscars? It was nominated for the adapted screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, who also was yeah. directing a movie for the first time in this effort. But yeah, he was nominated. The winner was Call Me By Your Name. I know Sorkin was at least a writer, if not the screenwriter of Moneyball. Mm -hmm. Have we done any other Sorkin movies, or is this only the second one now? I don't think so. I don't think he wrote, I don't think he's written any other sports movies. He hasn't written yeah. that many films because he spent so much time on television with The exactly. West Wing and The Newsroom, of course, but also a television show, was it Studio... Stone? Oh, Studio 66 on the Sunset is that it? Trip yeah. or whatever. I'm not a huge Sorkin fan. There's something about mm -hmm. his style of writing where everybody's just super quippy and on it. And Everybody's good. Yeah, you're right. Everybody's it's not just one or two. It's 12 people that can talk like that. Exactly. And in Moneyball, that doesn't really come across. Billy Bean's a little bit quippy, but he's an intelligent, witty guy. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's cool. It's one of the reasons why I never really got into the West Wing too much. I really didn't like Newsroom very much. And I didn't either. I didn't like Studio whatever, number six. Never saw that. Yeah. For the same reason. At a certain point, it becomes distracting to me because they aren't having a conversation. It's almost like everyone is just always verbally jousting each other. And at times in this movie, I like the movie. Okay. It's fun. But there's scenes where, like, for instance, Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain are having a discussion. And Elba is supposed to be her lawyer. And they're supposed to be having a very sincere and meaningful discussion about her defense case. Or but something. they're jousting and they're battling. Yeah, and they're having fun, quippy little arguments about the crucible. You might go to jail for a long time. Why don't you talk about the evidence against you? Sit down and shut up for a minute and listen to his legal advice. Don't quip back and forth. So I don't know how you feel about Sorkin as a general rule, but... It's sometimes hard for me to separate myself from his screenwriting, I find. I can see that. I won't disagree with you, except I do like him more than you. I saw The West Wing once years ago. I would watch it again. If it was on demand or something like that, Netflix, if they ever had it, I'd probably watch it. I love A Few Good Men. I loved The American yeah. President, which he wrote for Reiner way back in the 90s. 
Didn't like the newsroom. Bob and I were not fans of that show, which was overwritten for one thing and not well yeah. played, but really overwritten. And this movie in some ways is not like that in most of the scenes, except for what you just said, the ones with her and Elba. Yes. That's Cause the, she doesn't have that much cool. dialogue with the other characters. It's so much of a voiceover. If I didn't know he wrote this, and of course I wouldn't know what it's like for him to direct a film because he never had before this one, I don't know that I would have picked this out to be an Aaron Sorkin film. So I like the guy, and I also like this movie, but I didn't think it was as much of an issue as you seem to or you in generally feel about his stuff. I don't mean it to sound like everyone's always quipping at each other all the time, and Michael Cera's character has a few of those moments, but it fits with the Tobey Maguire analog that he's supposed to be. Yep. Jeremy Strong has some of those moments where he's ripping some digs at her that in a way it doesn't feel like somebody of his lesser intelligence would be able to do. <laughs> Such an integral part of the drama of this movie is how is she going to get through this legal dispute that she's found herself embroiled in? Because she has no money, she has no resources, she has no friends. Her family is disassociated from her at this point. They aren't giving her any assistance save showing up at the actual hearings. Mm -hmm. No financial assistance. So this whole drama of, is he going to help her out? Of course, you kind of figure, yeah, he will, or else you don't get Idris Elba to play that role. <laughs> but part of that suspense in the drama was diminished for me. It was almost like a flirtatious back and forth. And when you get his daughter in the mix as well, when she shows up yeah. and they're quipping, at a certain point, I'm like, you're going to have Molly Bloom and her lawyer hook up at some point, right? Because you're playing it in such a weirdly flirtatious way. And it never happens. But it just felt like a weird tension that they were building between these two characters. That doesn't pay off. Because it's the wrong tension. Her life going forward is at stake here. Are you going to be a felon that's locked up for five years and then back on the street? Or are you going to get off relatively cleanly? Jessica Chastain is beautiful in this movie. Oh, yeah. 100%. We talked about the score factor. The guys? Well, Elba, yes. I know he was maybe going to be Bond. People still want him to be Bond. Great looking guy. I would love him to be Bond still. Okay. The players, though, in this movie... Pretty much to a man, not anything to look at. <laughs> that is accurate of poker players. <laughs> but, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, you know better than me. You're the one that plays or did play cards before we couldn't do anything anymore with the yes. pandemic. But Chastain has probably never looked better than she does in this movie. So her alone, and I guess maybe some of her employees, make this a very scorable movie <laughs> from a guy's standpoint. Oof. But if you're a lady or a gay guy watching this movie, you're probably not going to agree. Although you get plenty of Idris Elba in the film, I guess, too. And those scenes, by the way, as important as they are, two things. One is they couldn't be from the book because the movie shows that she's already written Molly's Game, the actual book that this is based on. Right. And the second thing, those scenes are not bad, but they're the weakest part of the movie. I like watching the whole poker stuff, and I guess it's flashback, way more. And the movie is two hours and 20 minutes, so there would have been room, yeah. we would think, going in. There's got to be a romance the way it's setting up. I didn't feel the movie was slow, but it is long. It's too long. That might be the longest movie. No, Any Given Sunday was longer, and maybe some others have been. But it's one of the longest movies we've watched yet. And I don't want to get rid of those scenes with Elba because the two of them are good together, and it's good to have this guy on screen. He's talented, all that. Yep. But at the same point, if you had to get rid of anything, and Bev and I just talked about this recently on The Great Dictator, in that movie, get rid of the barber scenes where Chaplin plays the nice guy, the barber. And make it a satire of Hitler, which it was anyway, and make the movie a lot shorter. In this movie, I'm not saying get rid of those scenes with Elba, but I guess I am at the same point, because you do have a leaner movie that's just about cards, although maybe they thought that's been done before. If it's not the very best cards movie of all time, and we've already covered it, although it was years ago, Rounders would have done the same kinds of things that were in this movie in the cards scenes, although that's yeah. a player who we follow the whole time. Also, the voiceover narration like this has, Chesting has a lot of narration in this. But maybe they thought, let's do the card movie, but also have it be a legal movie. Those moments with the two of them, Idris Elba and Jessica Chastain, talking about the case and verbally sparring are probably the weakest part of the movie. And yes, it is too long. I was like you. I loved all of the stuff in her flashbacks and her narration about her life. Her rise to power. That was all, I thought, very well done and very interesting and fun to watch. You're right about the lawyer character. I read somewhere that Aaron Sorkin wrote in the Idris Elba character himself. Oh. It's an entirely fictional character. Molly Bloom herself obviously had legal representation, but Sorkin didn't want to be bound by realism when it came to Elba's character. He wanted free reign with whatever he wanted that character to be, so it is entirely fictionalized. But what fell flat for me, even more so than Elba, were the moments where... I shouldn't say more so than Elba, because I love Idris Elba, and I liked his portrayal. I just yeah. didn't like the way that the dialogue between the two of them was written. But what fell flat for me was the moments when Molly Bloom was describing her relationship with her father. That was a little bit overwrought at a certain point, because it felt like there was a twofold reason for Sorkin setting that up. One was to establish 
that Molly Bloom felt vulnerable to powerful men, and thus her desire to establish this game was setting herself free. It wasn't the money or anything. It was, now I have power over, over powerful, powerful men. Costner literally says that yeah. in their last scene together. Not their last scene together, but the scene after she's been skating, which is right. a well-played scene by the two of them and pretty well-written. That's but at a the good same scene. point, I don't know that it was necessary because it's so literal. It's literally telling you these things that if you're smart enough, you don't need to be told. Yeah, that's true. It's a good scene, but it might not be necessary. And that's what I felt about a lot of their scenes. What you learn of Kevin Costner's character, you learn very early on when you see him and how he treats Molly as a young girl training to be an Olympic skier. You're told about the success of her siblings, her two brothers, who are prodigies and different things yeah. in their own right. And you later get a scene where Molly's mother is yelling over the phone at Costner's character because he's been cheating on her. So you get a really good sense of this guy being an overbearing father who's very demanding, expects a lot of his children, and maybe isn't the best husband. But interspersed also, you get scenes where Molly's talking about how she'd like to rile up her dad and unnecessarily right. pick a fight. Yeah. Pick a fight. And some of those scenes are like five or seven minutes long. So what? You're a young teenage girl and you made your dad mad. Wow. Show me a teenage Groundbreaking. girl that, that hasn't, right? It didn't really do much for me. And I felt like that was the kind of stuff that padded the movie out, as did some of the stuff with Idris Elba. Like he had a long scene with the two prosecutors where he mm -hmm. went on this long monologue about how she shouldn't be prosecuted because she's not a mobster, blah, blah, blah. She's almost a saint the way he describes her. <laughs> it's a good monologue, but it doesn't do anything because the prosecutor's like, all right, you're done. Good. Now we're still going to prosecute you. That was 10 minutes I achieved nothing, except now Molly's going for a walk and she meets her dad, which also doesn't really accomplish a whole heck of a lot anyway. So. Except to literalize what we should be realizing in the first place. And that's a long way of saying I think you're right. I think there's probably fat that could very easily be trimmed off of this movie and made it closer to two hours, maybe, rather than 220. Right. And you wouldn't have lost a lot of development, really. Could have been a good miniseries, maybe. Actually, that's a very good idea. Not a TV series, but a miniseries. Like a four-episode, and you can really build out some of those relationships. And give that... Costner even more screen time, because he didn't yeah. have that much for Kevin Costner. Our fourth Kevin Costner movie now. The yeah. last two have not really been him being an athlete, because he was the GM in Draft Day. Tin Cup, Field of Dreams are both in our archives. Tin Cup, the beginning of our podcast, Field of Dreams, was last year. So he, I think, is now setting the record, certainly for starring, or in this case, third build roles. I love me some costumes. He's passed Woody Harrelson and a lot of other people who've done three of our movies, but now four. For, I don't know if there's any more than that. No, of course there is. There is For Love of the Game, oh, which we shouldn't cover, but we no. may be good one day. I got to ask you, because we haven't talked about it for a while, the old salty discharge, Ryan. This movie? I know your love for Field of Dreams, and that will get you every time, and that's one of Kevin Costner's career highlights. In the moment... When his character meets his daughter after she goes skating okay, right, yeah. and all that, and they're having that very literal conversation, and he gives her the three-minute psychoanalyst treatment, and then she finally breaks down and says, well, you always doted on my brothers, they're so much better than me, why'd you hate me? And he goes trying to comprehend how much I love you, is trying to comprehend the size of the universe, mm -hmm. and half-jokingly, half-not, says anybody that lays their hands on my daughter, because of course Molly Bloom got assaulted by a mob goon earlier in the movie. Does he know that, though? She must have told him at some point, I assumed. Oh, I thought he just meant about the government or anyone else when it comes to taking her to court. I didn't think he meant oh, no, she, literally she, put their hands on her. She said, it's the mafia, Dad. You can't do that. And he says, I don't care. He knows. Oh, you're right. Okay, yeah. Which is probably a bigger problem for him than the government is as far as yeah. don't cross them. And that went entirely unresolved. This guy that busts in and beats the snot out of Molly Bloom, and then we never see or hear from the Italian mob ever again. We know the Russian mob got taken down as part of this indictment that involved Molly Bloom, but the Italian mob could still be out there and might still have it in for her, for all we know. Right. Now, obviously, Revenge, in, yeah. in real life, I don't think that's the case, but for the sake of the fictionalized version of her, it would have been interesting just to have that wrapped up a little right. bit. If she was to run in the games, that might be more of an issue, but she's not. So maybe that's why I was just forgotten about. I don't really know. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, the movie's too long, but there's a lot of things that were left unsaid. And the things that are said maybe don't need to be said. <laughs> Bev and I watched it together, and she pointed this out because one of the voiceovers is Molly saying that she was taking an epic amount of drugs. Yes. So many drugs. Molly's game, in a nutshell, the calmest drug addict who's ever lived loses lucrative <laughs> job. Because Bev said at one point... That's right. She's supposed to be high all the time. She never acts high. This is a very good actress, but she doesn't play that she's doesn't talk like me That's when true. normally she might talk like this, but then talks like Ryan does in his normal life. And I'm, I'm not on any kind of drugs other than what's sitting in my left here. I'm so wide right now. 
It's like, funny that such a talented actress down. wouldn't play that she's high. And maybe they didn't want her to because it might have been annoying. Think of the Goodfellas sequence when he's high on coke towards the end. And this is a Goodfellas kind of movie. The biggest difference is Henry wanted that life from when he was young and Molly fell into this. But the narration and a lot of other aspects of this movie, the crime that they are making it seem like it's not a crime. Although what she's doing, she says, is above board. But this movie has a lot of Goodfellas type things going on, too, especially if she's supposed to be high all the time, which she doesn't seem high. That's what happens with Henry in the latter half of that film. Her character at various points might look a little bit tired at best, but yeah, she's never whacked out seeming. And at one point she describes all the drugs. At its best, it was crushed up, I think, Adderall to avoid the time release factor, get the hit right away. And then it was on to speed and amphetamines and cocaine and a whole bunch of stuff I can't even name. And then downers to try to sleep. Yeah, you should be bouncing off the walls towards the end of the night at some of these games. It doesn't look like she's working, I'm not going to say she's not working hard, but working that long that she needs all this stuff either. Well, I think some of these games, depending on how good the game was, might go into the early morning, like right. start at 10 a.m. One of the Bill Camp games does, yeah. What's his name again? Harlan Eustace. Yeah. They show that he's playing into the next day, right? Yeah, so if she's managing the game for, let's say, 10, 12, 14 hours, if it's a really long game, and then has to reconcile the books, pay everyone out, shut the game down, essentially, and then she's got six or seven games going a week. Yeah, I could see it being busy. but Was it that many games? When she was in, I think, New York, she said... Right, it's New York, it's busier, that's right. Because yeah. there's less money involved than there was in L.A., I guess. Especially in reality, because in L.A., as many power brokers are in New York, in L.A., they had the movie stars. Yeah. Leo's supposed to be depicted in this movie as a guy wearing headphones, and I forgot to look for him, because I read that before I started watching, but I didn't see a guy wearing headphones. Because yeah, apparently he's... Leonardo DiCaprio would go to these games with Tobey Maguire, I guess, and yeah. wear headphones to listen to music. And I'm not sure if that was him trying to be cool, or if he was trying to disconnect, or he just wanted to relax and didn't want the, oh my God, it's Leo factor. If he can't hear these guys, then he doesn't have to deal with any of that. No, you're right. And I think the guy with the headphones was one of the early scenes with Player X when he's introduced and he bluffs this. Uh, was he wearing the headphones when he bluffed the guy off the nuts at one point? That could be the scene then. Okay, maybe. Maybe. He had long hair. Maybe he was wearing headphones. I thought that was supposed to be the Leo you know what, now that I'm saying it, I think it's wrong. But nonetheless, that scene was insane and a lot of fun. Everything Michael Sarah did to try to portray Tobey Maguire in that moment was the exact opposite of what you should do if you're trying to bluff somebody mm. off of. Aside from the fact that you got to be an utter moron to fold the best possible hand that you can possibly have on that board in poker, which is what Molly Bloom says in the voiceover, I think, more or less, is that this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Right. But everything Michael Sarah does, from his body language to the way he holds his cards to the fact that he says, I got you beat, I got queens under here. If you want to get somebody to fold a hand better than yours, you're doing the exact opposite of it. I can promise you that. It was just bananas to me. Do you mean whether he's bluffing or actually had queens? No, I mean, if I'm playing a hand against you, Ryan, and I know you've got me beat, but I want you to fold, everything I do to try to convince you to fold should be the opposite of what Michael Sarah did. Okay. Saying, I'm going to show you, I'm, I'm going to about to turn over my cards, or saying, I promise you, I got you beat. That's the kind of stuff that I would say to you if I secretly want you to call, but I want you to think, oh, wait, you're telling me you've got me beat. Well, screw you. You don't got me beat. You're just messing with me, so I'm going to call. It's that kind of reverse psychology. Oh, I see. So I think the intention was good, and I got to say, by and large, the poker action in this movie was pretty well done. Like they did a much better job in portraying the way poker is run than Rounders did, for sure. And Rounders, okay, you know how much really? I love Rounders, but Rounders, it's portrayed almost like you and I just sitting at home playing cards, dumping chips into the middle of the table without counting it, right, yeah. self-dealing. In this one, they have dealers, they're counting out bets, they're doing stuff properly. And you've got Jeremy Strong doing his damnedest to try to run a chip over his knuckles early in the movie. Mm -hmm. Doing a pretty good job of it, I gotta say. By and large, this movie does portray the game pretty well, but I don't know if Michael Sarah, as much as I enjoy his portrayal of asshole Tobey Maguire in this, <laughs> when it comes to playing cards, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I buy it, man. I'm sorry. I don't. From what I hear, that's just Tobey Maguire. Yeah. Apparently, he is an asshole in general. There's a reason maybe why he hasn't had much of a career the last about 10 years I when think... he's been in so many big movies and so many good movies. Yep. I'm not saying that's the reason. But I bring this up with Bev once in a while, which is, why are women not in this movie or that movie? Why don't they have a career anymore? And it's probably sexism. It's probably Harvey a lot of the time, Harvey Weinstein. But it very well could just be that they're the female Tobey Maguire. 
where nothing really bad happened and nobody wants to blackball this person, but they're enough of an asshole that <laughs> he may have been in a lot of big hits, but fuck you. Some people are just jerks. And at a certain point, you're like, I don't want to work with you anymore, man. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. And I think in Tobey Maguire's case, that's as simple as it gets. I think the book names him, doesn't it? But the movie doesn't. It's funny they do that. Maybe it's a legal thing. Maybe. But then why is his name in the book? I've never read the book. I thought there were four people specifically named in the book. Wasn't Leo one of them? I think Leo, Alex Rodriguez, when he was playing with the right. Yankees, yeah. Toby McGuire, obviously. And I don't know who the fourth was. I can't remember offhand. But you're right. None of them are specifically named here. Player X is the biggest player in the movie. And at one point when she moves to New York, she gets the Playboy Playmates that she hires to sort of drum up big money players for her new game to say, I've got a New York Yankee that will be at the game. That I thought every- that meant Jeter. I was assuming that I did Jeter. too. Until I looked it up and I'm like, oh, it's A-Rod. Right. I 100% assumed it was Jeter. <laughs> A-Rod makes sense too, because if there's a bigger star than Jeter on the Yankees in that time period, maybe it's A-Rod. And richer. And richer. Because a lot of these guys are blowing a lot of money in one night and they don't seem like they care that much. And then of course, oh, Bad yeah. Brad, one of the reasons why she that goes down is yeah. because Bad Brad is blowing money, but that's not why she goes down. It's because he had a Ponzi scheme with these guys. Yeah. So maybe he wasn't going to those games in the first place, although maybe he was, to get business, but that's what it was in the end. He seemed to like playing. Maybe that's, I guess the movie is saying that, isn't it? That's what he was doing. He yeah. probably enjoyed himself, but it's really more about let me get business from all these very rich people. At that point in LA, she was running her 50K buy-in games, I think. Brad lost half a million dollars over the course of six games or something. But I think in that voiceover, she says he drummed up $4 million for his hedge fund. Mm-hmm. And of course, later we learned, as you said, it wasn't a hedge fund, it was a Ponzi scheme. So if you're running one of those Ponzi schemes, you got to be drumming up tons of money to pay out to the early investors so that it seems like your thing is legit. So if he's dumping half a mil to get four million so that he can pay out these people to keep the law off his back, it's a good trade-off. Which is why it was all the more interesting when we had that scene later with Bill Camp's character just going on full-on tilt. Mm-hmm. He gets raised off of the best hand by Bad Brad, which was a crazy fold for a guy that is built up as a really, really good player at that point. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is the most overused phrase in poker generally is being pot committed. And they even reference it at one point early in this movie, too. You've got so much money in the pot that you got to call. The sunken cost fallacy. Yeah. It's stupid. People say it and they don't really understand its full implications a lot of the time because it can be true a lot, but it's not always and it gets misused. But in the case of that one scene with Harlan, when he folds, ultimately, there's like 150000 in the pot. He had himself invested something close to seventy. And all he had to do was put in 50000 more. He had a full house. He had to put in 50000 more, and he could have won a $300,000 mm-hmm. pot. It is insane if you're any kind of half-decent poker player at that point with a hand as good as his to fold it. I don't care if you've got a better full house. If you've got a better full house, fine. You take that chance. You take that chance. But you could have trips. You could have a straight. There's a lot of other stuff, especially if you don't know who this guy is, and maybe he's just there for fun. And at that point, he didn't know. It was an unknown. So... That was the one thing that rang a little hollow to me because the movie had spent the previous 20 minutes building up Harlan as the good, solid, slightly tight, although they said he plays 36% of hands, which is also a crazy high number of hands to play. You don't fold there. You just don't. But I loved the way they played the tilt afterwards. Oh, yeah. It is 100% a thing. When you lose or you screw up and you know it and you just go on tilt... I've done it to like a fractional degree of the amount of money that this guy lost, obviously. But I've been playing games where I've screwed up, lost money as a result. And I said, oh, I just get mad. I want to get it all back. You would dump money. It's real. And I loved that because you don't see it on screen very often. And Bill Camp did a fantastic job of playing a guy that just Mm -hmm. would not give up, would not leave because he's on tilt. And damn it, he was going to get his money back. I like that, too. It was one of the best sequences in the whole film. And Brian Darcy James, by the way, plays Brad... One of the most popular podcasts Bev and I have had the last few months is Spotlight. And he's the reporter that no one would know. It's Ruffalo. Why am I forgetting their names now? <laughs> <laughs> Rachel McAdams. The actors that Oh, and know. Keaton, who's their boss, in a way is a reporter too. But the fourth member of that team, the Spotlight team, is Brian Darcy James, Matt Carroll, who I remember saying okay. to Bev was an underrated part of that team, the actor himself, but also the character in that film. That's who Brad is in this. I didn't recognize him at all. That's a good character actor for you. I didn't even know who he was. He did a good job of playing a guy that was just a little bit oblivious at the poker table. But you know what? Maybe he had a little bit something like you just described earlier. I think he's saying that he was very much doing this for a purpose. This wasn't just, I'll do this on top of it. No, this was the whole point for him in the end. And yes, he did have fun too, probably. One thing that's nice actually in the film, and it's scenes she has with him, I guess. Yeah, maybe the poker isn't your game scene. And then trying to talk down Harlan is that she may be lying. 
she was going to be a lawyer, so she's probably good at lying. Right. But it seems like Molly cares about these guys to some extent. She's talking sense to them. Maybe it's just a crock. It's like when the casino manager comes over to you and says, <laughs> you've lost $100,000 at the table. Maybe you should go get some rest. Go get something to eat. No, I got to win the next hand. And for them, it's probably just a matter of, well, I'm supposed to do this by law, maybe, or even just by moral, so I'll do it. They won't listen anyway, so yeah. I've covered my ass. But it seems like Molly does care about someone like this. She's known Harlan for a while. She's known Brad a little bit. Obviously, she knows Player X the best. They seem like they're actually flat-out friends for a while. He's hanging out when the games are over with her. But then, of course, he's the one that screws her over when she's mm -hmm. basically drummed out of L.A., which I'm not sure was true that Toby did that or anyone did that when I was reading about her real story. That may have just been a drama thing to get her to New York. But she seems to be friends with him for a long time, just like she's friends with her employees. I really like when she hires the New York people, mostly yeah. women, that they hang with her and they could talk to her, even though she's their boss and they don't have this job if it isn't for the fact that she's going to pay them probably pretty well, especially the tips they probably got from the rich players. But the one dealer especially talks to her, like you and I are talking right now, this isn't, oh, I better be polite to Miss Bloom. Yeah. I like that. I think one of the things this movie does well, and it's probably a result of Molly Bloom's involvement and her book, is it portrays a few aspects of running this kind of game in a way that makes a lot of sense. In Molly's own words in this movie, makes a lot of sense. Because it portrays it as both a social activity, but one where people are there because they love to play cards, but they want to play for action too. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, realizing that her very survival via this game is contingent on a few things. And it's one, having a luxurious setup going with some really capable staff, whether it's these beautiful Playboy Playmates she hires to do it or the dealers that play. Mm -hmm. She demonstrates her concern for the dealers in one scene when Harlan loses it on the dealer and throws a bag of chips at him or something, right? That shows that she understands the importance of all that, which is absolutely true. You can't run this kind of game without these components there. You need a good dealer. You need all these things. But you also need to have players that want to be there and want to have fun and feel comfortable being there. And part of that is what you just described. The right? presentation. The presentation. And I wasn't 100% convinced either way what her motivations were in doing that. Because she spent time early on saying, I needed to make sure these people kept coming back week after week. And the problem is, the buy-in's $50,000, right? And you lose one buy-in. Okay, well, whatever. I had a great time. I got to hang out with a few celebrities and movie stars. And I'll come back next week because I can afford it. But if you lose 10 buy-ins, maybe that's enough for you to say, oh, you know what? I took a beating that night, so I ain't coming back. Right. This so, is too hard. It's too hard. So from Molly's perspective, she doesn't want them to get to that point because selfishly, she wants them to come back the next week. But she doesn't want to rig the game either. She also doesn't want to rig she the game. She is on the up and up the movies portrays for 100%. a long time. And that's why she might say to them, maybe you're having a bad night or maybe this game's not for you. Maybe you should take the night off or something so that they don't lose so much that they get dissuaded. But then, of course, later on, you get to the point where she has the opportunity to give text messages and hard drive information that she had stored in exchange for $5 million with interest or something back that the government had seized and all charges dropped and all that. She says no, because, oh, she's got her morals. But frankly, Idris mm -hmm. Elba makes a very compelling point. She's got all this information that could destroy lives. But Elba says to her, this is your life. You could go to jail, right? Because they've already found out the prosecutors aren't going to cut a deal otherwise. You have no money. You owe me a quarter of a million dollars and you can't pay mm -hmm. me. How many rich, famous people did she get to know probably pretty well over an eight-year span? And as the movie portrays it anyway, none of them show up to help her financially or otherwise. He makes a good point. Where are they? They right. are here. I'm here and you haven't paid me and this offer's on the table for you and you're protecting these people that have just gone to ground, essentially. Yeah, right. At this point, she's famous, right? She's been on newspapers. The first time she meets Idris Elba, his 10-year, 12-year-old daughter recognizes her from the news. Surely these people she played cards with are aware that the poker princess whose game they played in has been arrested and none of them have reached out? I don't know, man. That's well, a tough thing to say no to. What do you think the motivation is for why they go after her so hard? Is it because she's a woman, maybe? Or is it because of what she knows and the people she can maybe bury? And she doesn't end up doing it, although apparently she identified Toby Maguire and others in that book. Yeah. But what we see in the movie, at least, Toby Maguire didn't do anything that was all that wrong or illegal. Although he is, as she points out, when he's fronting Harlan, he says for many months... Mm -hmm. Which also colors those scenes because Harlan's an excellent player. This is his career. He's like John Turturro and Rounders. Yes, be a, that's right. Be a good comparison. Maybe a better player than Turturro, but similar. But then he also had a backer. And when that backer's at the table, I didn't even think of it until she says it, but that does taint the game. 
because yeah. he might not play the way he should to make sure that Harlan doesn't lose too much because that's also player X's money. But then the game isn't honest. Yeah. Which is what she wants. And the minute she takes a rake is like I said a few minutes ago about Goodfellas. That's the minute he takes a snort of cocaine. That's when he goes downhill. And I watched Boogie Nights again recently, and I think Boogie Nights is such an homage to Goodfellas. And one of the big moments in that is that New Year's Eve sequence. The first time we see, because it's weird that he wouldn't have done it before, but Wahlberg tries coke. And that's the night when William H. Macy blows his own head off after he kills his wife. And a lot of big things happen that night. But that's the night he tries coke, which I think is one of the reasons why Goodfellas is its forefather. And I think Molly's game is Goodfellas and maybe Boogie Nights' bastard kid, if you will. (laughs) But for her, it's not coke, although she's doing drugs. Which oh, she's really doing specifically see. coke. <laughs> well, that's true. They do show that. Okay, right. Even though she says it, you don't think about the fact she's coked up. She's drugged up all the time because she doesn't play it that way. In this case, her drug is finally doing something she didn't want to do, which is take a rake. When she gets a payoff, then the game's tainted. You raised a couple of points there that I found kind of interesting in the movie themselves. I'm glad you mentioned them. I know we talked about Jessica Chastain's portrayal being drugged up goes already, but her character says specifically a few times when asked, you were so careful how'd you screw up? And she says, I was on drugs, I made bad decisions. So, I like the line, that was back when I was still making good decisions. Yeah, that was a good line. There is a distinct moment that you could probably link it to Boogie Nights and Goodfellas in that way. This is where it all goes downhill, and it is taking the rake. I don't think she was prosecuted specifically because she was a woman. I can't say definitively she wasn't in reality, but as portrayed in the movie, I don't think that was the intention. I think the intention was, this is somebody that we can break. We can take everything she has. We can sort of bend but her. why? Because she's a woman, though? No, because she was in a personal space with a lot of very bad people and maybe had some information that she wouldn't otherwise... Weren't other guys who did the same thing she does? Yeah, but the difference is they know she's not a mobster, right? They know she's not connected to the mafia, the Russian mafia or otherwise. And by taking everything she has and threatening her freedom... They can maybe break her and get information that they're not going to get from a mob guy because the mob guys know they're going to be taken care of or their families are going to be taken care of. There's that code of honor thing or whatever. One reason I ask you about that is because this is a movie that is mostly with men, apart from the main character who is in every scene, I think, every single scene. Of course, there's a younger version of her, but Molly's character, whether it be the younger actress or Jessica Chastain, is in every scene. So it's definitely a woman's movie in that sense. And then a lot of her staff in the New York sequences are women. But almost everybody else on screen is a dude. Obviously the players, I think if not every single one of them, then certainly most. It's true. The most competent and intelligent person throughout the movie is Molly Bloom. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what we're told via narration about her brothers, about her father, about Idris Elba, she is the only one throughout the movie that you can look at and say, this person is savvy. She knows what's going on. She knows these people. She knows how to manipulate them. Self-taught. Self-taught, yeah. The rake aspect of it and that being her downfall, it just drives me crazy because it's analogous to me to things like prostitution in North America, at least. It's something that we know happens. What is the argument for not allowing this kind of home game to happen? Is it because at that point you're blurring the lines so closely with commercial establishments, casinos. I bet that's a big part of it. It is. You're pouring in our business, so screw you. But from a government's perspective, and granted governments, especially in the U.S., are so beholden to lobbyists and special interests that God knows why they do the things they do. Or in this case, Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson, yeah, exactly. If you're thinking of it purely from a cost-benefit perspective, and you're thinking of the well-being of the people involved, and this is why I liken it to prostitution, because it's called the oldest profession for a reason. We know it exists. We know it's always existed. And always will. And always will. So why don't we legalize it, make it safer for the sex workers involved so they don't have to be on the streets, so they don't have to be hiding in the shadows. Why don't we do the same thing for this kind of gambling? If I'm an American citizen, for example, I can go to a gun show and buy an AK-47 on the spot, mm-hmm. but I can't run a home game and hire a dealer and take a rake off that game to pay the dealer and make sure the house has enough money to pay off the players when they leave at the end of the night. That is bananas to me. Don't break the law while you're breaking the law. That's another That's good line. That's a great line. That's fantastic. The lawyer has. <laughs> but I'm not breaking the law, right? Well, eh, <laughs> probably not, but I'm not, right? We can look this up. It's in black and white. Yeah, that was a great moment. As good a job as she had done historically to vet her players and make sure they're good for what they owe, you can never guarantee if you're just getting somebody to sign for a hundred grand, that's not a legally binding contract. Good luck to you trying to take that person to court and try to retrieve that money if they don't pay you. It's more his good name, which is what she says at the end is all she has left, my name. It's almost like the scenes in The Hustler, the end of The Hustler. Forget about playing big time pool again. 
I don't do a very good George C. Scott, I guess. <laughs> his voice is hard to do. I'll rip my throat out, but rip my throat up. But that's his whole point, which is maybe we won't kill you right now, Paul Newman, but you'll never play a big time pool again. And I don't think he does. Well, we're way past the 30 minute mark in this podcast. And I haven't even done the Rotten Tomatoes numbers or anything. And I like this movie. 81% of the critics said yes. 7 out of 10 is an average and 84% of audiences. But like mm. I said earlier, the movie did not succeed at the box office. Nobody went to see this film in the end of 2017. And we have covered a movie from 2017 before. It was I, Tonya. Another woman lead. Another controversial film. Another extremely talented actress. I like Jessica Chastain, but Margot Robbie's one of my favorites. She is fantastic in that film. We covered yeah. that just earlier this year. That was 83rd that year. This was 85th. Last Jedi was number one. You're not a fan of that Ugh. one. And Get Out, which Bev and I covered a couple of years ago. One of the favorites from that year for most people, I think, or at least a lot of people loved it, was 15th. You do have two sports. Lots of poker, but there's also a decent amount of skiing early on. Yep. Now, we know nothing about skiing. I don't think we've covered a skiing movie. There are some of them, though. Downhill Racer with Redford back in the late 60s is one we could eventually cover, I guess. Eddie the Eagle. Oh, and Eddie the Eagle, jumping, which is but... on Disney Plus, too, and probably always will be there. So, right. Yeah, Eddie the Eagle's an option, and that's Hugh Jackman. Anyway, there's not much skiing in this, but there is some. And the movie is saying, and maybe Molly really feels this way, that if she didn't have that freak accident and have her career ended, because it wasn't just because she didn't qualify for the Olympics in 2002, it's because she was done. She fell on her head and then injury, and that was just a chance branch, just randomly out there, sticking out of the ground, and it caught her binding on her skis yeah, exactly and it knocked it off which is based on reality because of course this movie is based on reality the question is out there in the whole film and no one knows but where would this woman be if that didn't happen to her she probably would never gotten to poker that was one of those this happened this happened this happened this happened type things anyway the real story and the movie we've watched because only the dean keith basically makes her be his assistant that she ever even know anything about this she would have never gotten involved in poker but had it not been for her skiing accident she maybe wouldn't have qualified for the olympics that year but decent chance. But it isn't just that she didn't qualify. She can't do it anymore. It's interesting that you talked about I, Tanya beforehand, because it's almost a similar perspective that these two women are coming from. Tanya Harding was that skater in the U.S. that was just kind of on the bubble of being an Olympic qualifier. She was always around that fourth best skater in the U.S. And as depicted in this movie, Molly Bloom is the fourth best Mm -hmm. freestyle skier in the U.S. So she's right on the bubble and she talks about how her top two competitors had just flamed out a little bit in this final qualifier. I really liked the way that they portrayed the pre-run psych-up. Yes. She's listening to the music. She's hearing her dad's repeated instruction, visualize your line. And the way the movie shows that was great. And the sense of speed that you get when she's barreling down the hill. It's not a lot because like you said, we only get her little training bits when she's a wee kid. And then the actual ski run where she has that freak accident. But it's critical to this real person critical. and this character. It's interesting to think of the what ifs. The thing is, even if that doesn't happen and she sticks the run and all that, no guarantee that she makes the Olympic True. team. Or that she does well there. Or that she does well there or that has any lasting impact. Maybe she makes the Olympic team. She goes to the Olympics and doesn't do very much there. Doesn't medal. And still flames out, but in a yeah. different way. And still goes to school. And as the movie tells us... Molly Bloom doesn't really know why she did what she did at the post-law school period in her life. But as she recalls, she just wanted to be young for once. She keeps dodging law school. She doesn't go to law school. That's a big thing in this I thought film. thought she graduated from law school. I thought she said more than once that law school can wait another year. Law school oh, can wait what, another right. year. And she, another and another. And why wouldn't she right. keep on putting it off when she's doing so well? That's right. I think she said she was 22 or something when she moved to LA and had just graduated summa cum laude from whatever undergraduate school she had attended. But hadn't gone to law school. I think And somebody right. who yeah. has a chance to be at the Olympics has got to be really competitive. So when she's oh, yeah. doing the card games, part of what motivates her in the story, maybe it's not in reality, but in the movie we watched is that when Player X fucks her over, she says, I'm going to New York because I have no choice, but I'm also going to get revenge on you, which she doesn't really ever do, but I'll have this great card game that way. So there's always this motivation of, fuck LA, especially Player X. I'm going to succeed there, and it's because I have to be the best. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy, but I 100% agree with you, and I loved the way that the movie portrayed it. She goes through a two-week period or something of depression and sulking around, and then while in, I think, the waiting room for her therapist decides the best way for me to get out of this funk is not to see a therapist it's beat these buggers that just stole my game from me and i'm going to do that in new york and when she sets up the game for the first time and tells the women that she hired to drum with the players the buy-in's 50k right molly and she thinks about it for a minute and says 250k and mm -hmm. then i think mutters something to the effect of 
they'll hear about this in LA. Right. That's right? revenge. That's revenge. And it's great. Like I said, it's probably not very healthy as we see later, but hey, you know what? As somebody, like you said, that's ultra competitive, you can kind of get that impulse, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of things that this movie does really well as far as, if not character motivations, at least reactions. Toby Maguire in this movie, Player X in this movie. <laughs> it's Michael Sarah, but I'm picturing Toby Maguire playing him because he might as well have. He wasn't busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It would have been a great piece of PR for Toby Maguire if he had agreed to play himself. That would have been fantastic. I think a lot of people would have forgiven him a lot of ills if he had done that. But when you get to the point where Michael Sarah as Toby Maguire, because I think you're right, I'm almost picturing Toby Maguire at this point, says to her, why won't you ever hang out with me? You hang out with these other people, you flirt with these other people, he suspects she's sleeping with them. And if it's flirting, it's pretty debatable from what we see. She is very... She's very professional. Cold, almost. Well, she's not cold, because like you said earlier, she does She care. cares, yeah. She's, she's not, distant. Let's put that. She's distant. Yeah, she's not flirtatious by any yeah. stretch, as we see her. But he's insulted that she doesn't view their friendship as something that goes beyond the poker table. As the character is portrayed, you understand why. He's an asshole, and he says at one point, I don't play because I love poker. I play because I love to destroy lives, or I love mm-hmm. to ruin lives. We get that sense of him being egocentric, spiteful, vengeful. We get all that from Michael Sarah's performance, which was good. As much as I ragged on his poker performance a little bit, his actual performance as Tobey Maguire I thought was kind of cool. So by the point when he gets pissed off for spiteful and petty reasons, totally apart from poker, at Molly, just personal reasons, and then decides, screw you, I'm going to ruin you by taking the game away, and then calls her and says, you are so fucked or something. Right. That was so good. Like, I never thought of it till right now. Such but a is good it, moment. I'm pissed at you because we didn't fuck? Yeah. That's it's how you got it then. so petty, right? But it fits entirely what we've come to expect from that player. At least at the poker table, it's just now transferred over to his personal Because he never actually play. hits on it the way that Chris O'Dowd's no. character does. Chris O'Dowd sits there more than once. He's in love with her. I'm not a yeah. huge fan of that actor, generally. But he's fine in this movie as Douglas Downey. Yeah. He's the one that actually is supposed to be in bed with the FBI and is effectively telling her, get the fuck out of there. They're coming for you. But he is in bed with them. But Toby Maguire, I did it again. <laughs> Player X never actually seems to say we should sleep together or date or anything like that. But yeah. I guess you're right about that. And I say she's distant. That may not be the right word for it either, but she's not an ass to them. She treats them almost like a den mother, but she's a little yeah. bit removed from everything at the same point. Maybe because, especially in the early scenes, but then I guess all of the scenes when there's cards, because when she first learns the game and she's Googling everything, she's distant from them, literally. She's 10 or 20 feet away. And then when she has her own games in these hotels and things, she's literally 10 or 20 feet away then, too. So she's distant in that sense. What she portrays here is effectively what you see in high-end card rooms in Vegas. All card rooms, really, but the best example are the higher-end ones. When she decides to run her own game, she gets the beauty montage treatment, right? She oh, gets yeah. the hair done. She gets all the sexy dresses. She gets the makeup and all of that. And she says something like she turned into the something version of herself. I can't remember what it was. But phony is what she's implying. This is not the real me. This is not the real me. This is me all beautified to the nth Those degree. 15 inch heels or whatever the yeah. hell they are. There's an oh, athletic achievement in its own right that women can... And you see a few long shots of her looking incredible. But one of the things that really stood out, not just the cleavage, but <laughs> the heels? were those heels. <laughs> How and why do women do that? I tip my hat to women that can put up with that at all, let alone for hours at a time or all day long. One of the things of human existence that has always baffled me is high heels. How we ever got to the point where that was a fashion choice that people... Men wore them hundreds of years ago, though. That was the thing. That's true. Yeah, they were... I don't know if women did. Men did. Yeah. It was like an 18th century... It was different because it was more of a proper platform thing. Yeah. It wasn't this stiletto type deal that she's wearing. At least sometimes she's wearing this phone. Form over function, eh? Right, yeah. Yeah, so she intentionally dresses sexy because, like you said earlier, all these players are men. All the women around are the Playboy Playmates she hires. Mm -hmm. They're the bartenders she hires who are all beautiful in their own right. But she is there to both be enticing in a distant way, but also the super responsible den mother. So it's like Mm -hmm. the unattainable, aspirational, sexy goal, I guess, of these players. So Player X is saying effectively without saying it, if I can't have you, then I'll ruin you because I like to ruin lives. And she said... I like that writing. That's really good. It's really good, right? You're telling me this now and I'm realizing now. <laughs> that's some good subtle stuff. I don't think Aaron Sorkin's known for his subtlety, but that's pretty good if I didn't pick up on it after two viewings of this movie. And it's implied throughout that first half of the movie that the Player X character, and again, one of these lines that I can't remember the exact words of, but Molly says that she's not going to kowtow to this green screen wannabe <laughs> kind of guy, right? Yeah, I like that line too. Yeah. 
So it implies that the expectation of player X is that everybody he's around is just going to be awestruck. And of course they want to play with him. That's the whole basis of her LA game, but it's just going to bend over backwards to make him happy just because he's Spider-Man or the green screen hero, as she describes. So that is implied throughout. And when he doesn't get what he wants, even though he didn't ask for it, even though she... Yeah. It was a really good little character well, development. Well, it's critical to the movie that she ends up in a whole different city across the country. And that's where she gets busted, not in L.A. Well, speaking yeah. of New York and L.A., New York North, Toronto, is where they shot this movie. It was in and around here. Some Canadian actors in pretty major roles like Michael Sarah, Graham Greene, who's the judge, is in quite a few scenes in the film. You have to have Canadian actors in pretty important roles in the movie if you're going to shoot it up here. And they did. Molly, in reality pleaded guilty to a federal crime. And there's a voiceover about how she can't go to Canada for some reason, but that's why. <laughs> if she was charged with a federal crime, she is barred from coming to Canada. So she couldn't go to the TIFF premiere <laughs> in right. the fall, or I guess the technically the summer, September 2017, for the opening of this movie, playing at TIFF. And the real Molly, I guess still, at least at that point, couldn't come here. Why she'd want to generally, I don't know, but <laughs> she couldn't then. You know what I found was a weird choice by Aaron Sorkin in terms of manipulating real facts for the sake of the movie. Because I think by and large, leaving aside the Idris Elba inclusion that we talked about earlier as being totally fictionalized, a lot of the facts here are relatively true to life. But one of the things that was weird was that scene in the courtroom when ultimately Graham Greene's judge character says to her, I don't agree with the prosecutors that... The sentence is commensurate with the crime because I'm in spitting distance to Wall Street and they're going to commit worse crimes by lunch mm -hmm. than you've committed in your whatever eight months in New York breaking these poker games. So I'm going to sentence you to 200 hours community service, one year of supervised probation and $200,000 fine. I spread here on Wikipedia, May 2014, she pled guilty, pleaded guilty. One year probation, $1,000 fine, 200 hours of community service, and then she had to forfeit $125,000 in earnings from the games she operated. In the movie, the sentence was community service and probation as cited there, but $200,000 fine. Why do you need the extra $200,000 tacked on for what dramatic purpose? We already know she's lost $5 million the government sees from her. We already know that she has... Didn't they say she was going to get that back? <clears throat> that was if she agreed oh, to flipped. the deal. Which she didn't. And the legality of that seizure was questioned throughout the movie anyway. So I don't know if she ever gets that back or if it's just the proceeds of crime in the eyes of the government or what. She should have offered up A-Rod and they could have said, yeah, makes yeah. sense that he do that. Part of it too, I think it's supposed to be an element of people bringing girlfriends to this stuff. Some happily married man. Oh, they, yeah. did, they didn't say Tom Hanks, but just as an example, somebody who's above reproach brings a 25-year-old girl there and he's messing around with her and they go in the bedroom and they're gone for 10 minutes and guess what? She blew him and then they come back out and then she's got information on Tom Hanks. That can't be... And again, I'm really using somebody who has nothing to do with this that I'm aware yeah, of. Why you got to drag down Tom Hanks? Like somebody man. who's above reproach is my point. Let's or say Yaziel Puig, for instance, for no oh, reason. As we read this today, that he's involved in something bad. Or even the real Kevin Costner, somebody who I don't think has ever been accused of anything like this. And I think right. is happily married to a younger woman, as I recall. But that, I think, is what's going on here, too, is that she has dirt on these guys because they would bring girls there. They'd do drugs there. They'd just be crossing lines, if not breaking laws in her room. Yeah. And when she's making good decisions, that doesn't happen. But then she starts being more aggressive like Harlan does when she gets a little desperate, which is what people do in cards, at least in movies, all the time. We see it in Rounders. I don't remember the Cincinnati kid. I'm sure it's in there. And it's in this movie, too, with both the main character, who's not even a card player, and, of course, the card players themselves. That's, I think, explicitly why she refuses to concede her hard drives in exchange for the plea bargain earlier in the movie. As far as the stakes of the movie goes, she's avoided jail time. Whether or not she owes an extra $200,000 instead of the $1,000 fine she got in reality, it was a weird editorial addition that Sorkin tacked onto her sentence for some reason. Maybe Judge Foxman just wanted what Player X wanted, which is, I want that body. Maybe. She's got that cleavage sparking out when she's oh hanging out with Idris Elba in his office. Yes. She dresses like she does, or not quite as good, maybe, but close to as good as she does for the games when she's just hanging out with him doing legal stuff. But this is why I meant. How do they not end up in bed together? How do they not? How's this not a Elba. romantic? How many times have I complained about romantic subplots in movies? And now you wanted one. And now I'm like, this makes perfect sense. They've spent so much time. She's always dressed so enticingly. And they'd be so good together. <laughs> and we have no implication that Elba's married. In yeah. fact, I think it's implied that he's a single father. They're both beautiful people. They spend so much time together. Mm -hmm. They're so intelligent. They have such good repartee. Why aren't you together? <laughs> 
This could be a porno in a great way, a really classy porno. We should have at least gotten the Jerry Maguire ending to this, where they hold hands and walk into Central Park, and it's like, yeah, maybe they last, maybe they don't, but at least they gave it a shot. They deserve it. Look at those two lovebirds. And the go. daughter's reading passages from the Crucible the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or throwing a ball over a fence. Yeah, she's reading some Henry Miller plays to them. So Sorkin wrote and directed, as we've talked about already, first movie as a director. He won the Oscar for writing The Social Network, which Beth and I covered earlier this year on The Top Nerd Project. And I do recommend The West Wing, obviously, more so than Chris. Sorkin said the players that he cast played between takes, and pro players are the people he wanted to be a lot of the extras, so they'd look authentic handling cards, which I forgot to even look for, really. But apparently they played for real when they could. There's a lot of downtime in a movie, let's face it. Yeah. And their pro players kicked ass. I didn't read that Sorkin said there was money involved. I bet there was, and I bet oh, yeah. sometimes it was nuts. Probably. It's like when they did Ocean's Eleven and they were in Vegas. Matt Damon, Brad Pitt, George Clooney all have different stories about who bet the most, who lost the most, who won the most at the various tables when they were shooting the movie in Vegas. It's probably the same thing here. I just didn't read about any of that kind of stuff. But he wanted authenticity by having the pro players. And I didn't see anybody I recognized. I almost want to go back and rewatch those scenes now because I wasn't thinking to really pay close attention to the extra bodies at the table to see if I recognize it. I'd probably pick out a few more than you would. And like I mentioned earlier, I think the actual portrayal of the game as you would find it, say, at a Vegas card room is, is a lot better than basically any other movie I can think of, up to and including Rounders. And this doesn't take away from my love of Rounders. There's one scene where the action didn't make sense to me because the race sizes should have been illegal and stuff like that, as far as I heard. Nobody was hanging around. No, no, hanging around. I missed a little Teddy KGB in this, I gotta admit. Hot lady has alligator blood. You know what, now that you say that he had pros on hand and just to add authenticity and they played between takes, that adds to the ability of the actual actors to act naturally at a table. It bugs me not just in poker movies or TV shows when they try to display poker, the absolute incompetence with which this is portrayed very often. It's something that we've touched on in other sports and you were enraged by with Rookie of the Year. I think we're both probably repeatedly astounded by the laziness of some Hollywood productions. How much can it possibly cost to hire, for instance, somebody that worked in some professional capacity with Major League Baseball to say, can you read the script and just tell us yes, whether there's right. any glaring holes here? One of the things I've been watching during quarantine on and off is the Vanity Fair series on YouTube where they actually bring in professionals in very particular fields to watch scenes from movies and tell them about the authenticity. Okay. Yeah. The one I watched most recently was a former American submarine commander to look at things like Hunt for Red October, U571, Das Boot, and talk about their authenticity. And it just brought to mind to me, you got so much money when you're making a movie, at least a big Hollywood movie, you can't throw 50 grand at somebody just to give the script a read through and just give notes on very basic things so that we're not watching it and thinking, are you kidding me? You have a round of playoffs between the end of the regular right. season, and the yeah. world series. How do you not know that yeah. movie? Kudos to Aaron Sorkin in this case, because he clearly took steps to get that authenticity. And I'm sure Molly herself, who I'm sure not only wrote the book, but I'm sure consulted closely on the screenplay. Mm -hmm. She had that experience by this point as well. But to have pro poker players makes perfect sense to me. Why don't more movies do this kind of thing? Right. But you think the poker in this movie was not perfect by any means and maybe not great? Am I reading that right? Like I said, it was probably the best that I can recall. And better than Rounders, screen. right. Rounders is portrayed as very much like you and me sitting down at a poker table playing cards. They deal themselves. Right. They're dumping chips in the middle thousands of the Thousands and thousands of dollars, but I'll deal for myself, which as you yeah. said in Rounders, would invite somebody to cheat by bottom dealing so easily. Yeah, and they simplify things a lot more for the audience. In this one, they don't get into the nitty-gritty of the poker games themselves too often and leave it high level, but as portrayed, they do a really fun job of watching guys handle chips, of putting in bets, of making raises. And this movie both shows and tells. Yeah, because their voiceover well. tells you a lot, but yeah. then they show you a lot visually. Yeah. yeah, the movie probably deserved to be a little bit more of a success than it was. I liked it. I'd give it three stars out of four. Okay, at a ten, seven, seven and a half, something like that. Yeah, I agree. And as somebody that saw this movie only when it came out on streaming, I remember seeing vaguely the media stuff that they put out in advance of this movie. And I didn't understand from watching the trailers and stuff what this movie would actually be so much. It's a lot more fun than I think the trailers would have you believe. Yeah, I think you're right. The trailers make it, if not dour, at least serious drama about this woman who was unfairly... Treated very unfairly, very unfairly. Well, I mean, she was. I think we both agree. <laughs> Mr. Trump, we agree on that. But there's a lot more fun to it than that. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm a big poker fan, as you've said before, and I had no desire to watch this in the theaters because I didn't really understand the way the movie was going to show itself. So I think if it underperformed, it was probably the advertising that did it. Could be them. I think a bit of a disservice. Justine has had one hell of a career in about 10 years. She's been acting longer than that, but we're talking hitting it big about a decade ago when she did The Help. That was, I think, her big breakout role. That was 10 years ago now? Around then, maybe nine years ago. so old. Her resume the last 10 years is great. Zero Dark Thirty, which Bev and I covered. She's very good in that. And apparently Molly Bloom wanted her to play her as well, which is quite a compliment when you consider the number of people she could have said, I want the best person to play me. Elba's resume is great. The TV stuff with The Wire and Luther, and he's in Star Trek Beyond, Hobbs and Shaw, obviously the Thor picks, meaning the Avengers universe, the Marvel universe. Heimdall. Heimdall, right. So the cast is definitely pedigreed, and we've said they're very good. The funny thing about Chastain in both Zero Dark Thirty and in this is that she's very good, but at the same point, I don't feel like I ever really get to know her. Scorsese said it about Citizen Kane, about yeah. Kane himself. At the end of that movie, you don't know him. And I think Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty, and maybe more so in this, even though she's the main character, and in this movie, she's such the focal point. But at the same time, I don't really feel like I know her. And I'm not criticizing that. In some ways, I like it. Because she plays both of those roles. Passionate, she cares, she looks great, but she's also pulled back and distant from it. And I think in an effective way, if that makes sense. I agree with you, and I don't think you get a good sense of who Molly Bloom is. I think at various points in the movie, you get a sense of who Molly Bloom thinks she has to be for the moment. She is doing what I've talked about in the other podcast so many times, an actor who has to act in the movie. She's a performer, but a character at the same time. Molly herself is performing throughout this movie in various roles, right? She's the professional athlete at 15 or whatever mm-hmm. and then she's the quintessential top year class student and then she's the poker hostess turned legal defendant throughout you just get the sense she's playing a role maybe i'm overthinking this aspect of it but i kind of got the feeling that this was intentional only because of some of the narration early on where it was implied that molly herself was post-skiing career at least flailing about who am i if i'm not under my father's thumb and she just became these roles herself and Mm -hmm. so maybe there wasn't a lot there to delve into she's 42 now she was born in 1978 and i wonder if the real molly if this movie's accurate to what she was so if the real molly knows what she is now because it seems like this character i wouldn't say uncomfortable in her own skin but to have that many different types of things going on or like that many different careers yeah She's good at everything she does, yet she floats around at the same point. She's not a failure, but what's it going to be, Molly? When did her trial take place? Was it 2014, you said? She was charged in May 2014, it looks like. Yeah, so six years ago-ish. Relatively modern times. So if Molly Bloom refused the plea deal for the reasons we already talked about, how much of that was, it's my name and it's all I have, But how much of it was also, I don't out any of these Hollywood or big money players that I know all these secrets about. Maybe I go to jail for three or four years. That sucks. But when I get out the other side of that, I'm 35 going on 40. No money, no career. But what I do have is an incredibly interesting story. I have demonstrated success building a multi-million dollar business from the ground up. And I know a lot of famous people. And I think about things like Catch Me If You Can, right? And I forget the real-life guy's name now. Leo plays Frank Abagnale Jr. That's That's right, Frank Abagnale Jr. Because it's a similar concept there, right? A guy that had nothing when he was arrested, went to jail, but got picked up by the FBI because of a certain set of skills. I'm sure if you're Molly Bloom, that's got to be in the back of your head as well. Because how many people do we know of that do really terrible stuff, go to jail... Come out the other side, write a book, do a press tour, maybe get hired by some corporation. I'm sure there's an event planning company or somebody that would hire her as the face of some marketing event, even if she went to jail. It's kind of easier to be the big person when you're presented an opportunity to throw somebody under the bus to save your own skin when you think that, you know, maybe even if I have to take a little bit of punishment for this, you know what, it's not going to be so bad on the other side. It's not all doom and gloom. I have another nutshell at the end of the podcast. Fuck Toby. (laughs) Fuck Toby. You're double nutted? (laughs) Double nutted. Fuck that guy. Well, Hollywood said fuck that guy too because he doesn't have much of a career anymore and it's too bad he's a good actor. Did we rip on Toby McGuire this much when we did Seabiscuit? Seabiscuit? Not even close. (laughs) (laughs) The movie that he was actually in and he's not actually in this movie. 
But yes, Chastain is beautiful in this movie. So it's scorable. We liked it well enough. Seven, seven and a half. How yeah. are the suds, though? How was the beer over there? Very refreshing. It's empty, though. Yeah, my drink is also empty. So we should definitely wrap for that reason alone. Okay, Molly's Game. Probably won't be a huge popular one for us because it wasn't in the theaters, but a very solid poker movie. Yeah. Also a bit of a skiing movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just throw that in, too. In two weeks, it will be the American Thanksgiving, which is as well known for pigskins as it is for turkey. So let's talk about football. We'll look at Keanu Reeves playing quarterback, as he did when we covered Point Break. I am a quarterback (laughs) agent. Not an agent. But this time, it will be the replacements. Gene Hackman's in that, too, is this coach, right? Yes, that's right. I saw that once a long time ago. It'll feel like it's brand new to me because I haven't seen it in so long. I want Hackman to turn to Keanu and say, get me two. (laughs) Two touchdowns. Keanu. Give me two. <laughs> that scene is never going to get old to me. <laughs> no, not me either. Okay, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. Podcast-wise, download us wherever you got this one and a lot more options. Time to fold, dudes. No one to hold them. I know that you will. <laughs>